Good morning. I grew up in a, a black Baptist church in New Orleans, Louisiana, and every first Sunday of the month, most churches honored the sacrament of communion. On the corner of Claiborne Avenue and Conti Street, we'd walk into church with our finest Sunday outfits on. I had to wear stockings, y'all. Stockings in New Orleans. In spring and summer, the, the, the choir and the deacons would always wear white, all white from head to toe. And in fall and winter after Labor Day, they would transition to wearing all black. It was an occasion. And one would expect to be in church an extra hour that day. Yes, you heard that right, an extra hour on top of the three hours we were already going to be in church. We had to be in church an extra hour. In some churches, they'd have an additional nighttime service that exclusively focused on the Eucharist. Thankfully, my mother and I found excuses not to attend those. Her favorite was, Mia has homework. My father, on the other hand, was the organist and music director at church, so he had no choice, but my mother and I would go on Sunday mornings. I'd often wake up late to church, so I didn't have time for breakfast, and to, I'd sit through service restless as my stomach growled loudly enough for my mother to give me that you should have woken up earlier look. By the time we got to the communion part of the service, I was so hungry. I couldn't wait to get my hands on a wafer and a cup of grape juice. Now, the deacons would pass the silver pans of crackers down each row, followed by the silver pans of tiny cups of juice. Now, when my mother was distracted, I'd sneak an additional wafer or three out of the pan before passing it on to my neighbor. So basically, I'd have three additional bodies of Christ. I was super holy during communion. Sometimes I would even sneak and eat the wafers before we were supposed to. <laughs> you see, we weren't an intention church. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's sort of like what we do here sometimes. You walk down the aisle, you pull your personal piece of bread, and you dip your personal piece of bread in a cup, and then a minister or a deacon blesses you personally. They say something like, uh, the bread of life for you, Karen, or uh, the cup of the new covenant for you, Devin. It's a personal, individual, Eucharistic moment. We didn't have that. We had to wait until every single person in the building got their communion before we could eat it. Because it wasn't an individual experience. It was a collective experience. It was a communal experience. And in that waiting, you had time to think. Think about how Jesus had given his life for you. Think about how important community was and to share in a sacred moment as disciples of Christ. But most of the time, I wasn't thinking about the blood that Jesus shed for me way back on Calvary. Most of the time, I wasn't thinking about how much Jesus or God loved me. Most of the time, I was thinking about how hungry I was, how this little bitty snack would do very little to satisfy me. I was thinking about how loud my stomach was grumbling. Could my neighbor hear my holy hunger? 
in this sacred time. My relationship with communion has shifted since then, but the holy hunger is still present. It isn't a physical hunger, though, and I have been known to steal the communion bread after church. I mean, holla is just so good. Uh, but it isn't a physical hunger anymore. My hunger is different. My stomach is not grumbling for food. My soul is grumbling for something deeper, something more expansive, something that will help me reimagine the world and transform the conditions of our living together. There is a hunger, I believe, that brings us to this table of grace. Even though the studies are telling us that the church is in decline, it is a holy hunger that keeps you coming back week after week or watching online week after week. A holy hunger. A hunger that is, for some of us, so loud that it wakes our neighbors up. A hunger that lingers because satisfaction seems impossible in times of great peril. The Eucharist has been a central ritual of Christian worship. Many Christians would agree that it is a memorial action in which by eating bread and drinking wine, or for some of us, grape juice or water, the collective recalls who Jesus was, what Jesus taught, how Jesus acted. Participation in the Eucharist enriches and strengthens the relationship between those who claim to follow the teachings of Jesus as well as their relationship with Jesus and with God and with the Holy Spirit. The way the Eucharist is practiced has long been controversial. What in the church hasn't been controversial? Quakers, for example, don't practice communion because many believe it to be too formal for the Holy Spirit to move freely. Some Baptists put restrictions on who can and cannot take communion. I, I, I remember as a kid, if you weren't baptized, they would pass the silver plate that I was describing earlier over your head. They would skip you, and I was so embarrassed that I went up to get baptized at eight because I was tired of missing out on the sacred snack. Some folks do communion every Sunday. Others do it once a month. Whole denominations have split and been formed over the Eucharistic practices. But regardless of the frequency or the type of bread or whether you do wine or Welch's grape juice, what does it mean? What does the act of communion mean? What is the point of the ritual? Why is Mia preaching about communion today? I, I see a few deacons looking around like, didn't we have communion two weeks ago? Uh, did I miss an email? Uh, was I supposed to sign up to volunteer? No, y'all are good. Relax. I find myself asking that question of so many of our religious practices these days. Amidst the ongoing violence that wrecks communities, the rising housing insecurity that we encounter every time someone calls the church desperate for a week's worth of rent, the skyrocketing food and gas costs, I ask myself, what is this all for? 
For many people who call themselves Christian, they call themselves Christian, communion is political theater. A lot like the judicial hearings we see on CNN and MSNBC political theater. It is a performance of the act of remembrance. Let me show the world my proximity to Christ. Let me show the world my proximity to God, to church. But for those of us who claim to take the teachings of Jesus seriously, the teachings about inclusivity, the teachings about justice, the teachings about forgiving debt and setting the captives free, Christian or non-Christian, the act of communion should be an act of revolution. It says, I'm not just doing this to worship Christ or to uplift Christendom. I am doing this because I made a commitment to following the teachings of Jesus. I made a commitment to transforming the conditions of our living together. I've made a commitment to not just milk the community that I'm a part of, but to give to that community as well. What is this thing all about? German theology professor, Ryaku Hikota engages the work of political theologian Johann Metz on the topic of Eucharist. Hikota offers that since the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, the Eucharist must be the source of Christians' political actions as well. In other words, communion must be more than just a fellowship of believers. It must be more than just an individual inward spiritual journey experience. It must lead to active reimagination that leads to revolution for the sake of lives, saving lives. Now, I hear some of you thinking, so you're saying spirituality is political. Spirituality isn't political, and I know we are so good at compartmentalizing ourselves. You know, we have spirituality over here, and we have justice over here, as if they are two separate things. But Hykota and Metz would argue that the spiritual is political. The Eucharist is a political act, or, or maybe, maybe bread and wine is too distant for us. Maybe bread and wine was too long ago. We have become used to it, that we've begun to romanticize it. It is too familiar to us, perhaps. We've done it so many times, the bread and the wine. Its politic has gotten watered down. Maybe it would be easier if it were cereal. The last meal of a kid in Uvalde, Texas. Maybe it would be easier if it were Skittles and iced tea. The last meal of Trayvon Martin. Would we be able to tap into the suffering then. Maybe if we were sharing Skittles and passing out tea, the politic of the Eucharist moment would come alive for you. The memory of suffering would push you out of contemplation and into greater commitment to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Often in times of great crisis and calamity, 
We like to create new liturgical acts. We want to have a vigil. We want to light candles. We want to add another moment of silence. Might I suggest that we have communion instead? Let's eat some cereal together. Let's have some tea. Let's remember. Let's recommit. But remembering is a risky task. There's this quote by the award-winning poet Lucille Clifton. She says, they ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, and I keep on remembering mine. They ask me to remember, but they want me to remember their memories, but I keep on remembering mine. My, my question for us today and every day is then what are we remembering? Or, or what are we misremembering? It is amazing to me that the various warring sects of Christianity share a liturgy about remembering but end up in different places. We all mostly gather with our communities to do this in remembrance of Christ. But some who call themselves Christian engage in death-dealing practices, and others who call themselves Christians are fighting to keep the victims of those practices alive. It's almost as if we need a new name, a new religious moniker that signifies what we are remembering. I feel a crucial division in the Christian traditions comes from misremembering. All Christians partake in some version of this sacrament, but what are the white Christian nationalists remembering? What are those standing in solidarity with the oppressed remembering? There is a schism in our memory. And they keep wanting us to remember their memories, their memories of exclusion, their memories of condemnation. But we must, people in this room, keep on remembering ours. Because ours can be life-giving, not death-dealing. Ours can be liberating, not disparaging. Ours can be way-making, not door-closing. Ours are memories of inclusivity, not exclusivity. Political theologian Johann Metz puts memory into two categories. The first kind of memory simply is the recollection of the past as the good old days, a golden and gilded era. It is memory that does not take the past seriously enough, Heikota says. And it depicts the past as what Metz calls an untroubled paradise, an asylum for the disillusionments of the present, an opium for the present. Both Christians and politicians rely on this kind of safe memory. This is where we get slogans like, make America great again. From or, or questions like, why can't we do things the way we've always done them? As if the past was a picture of pure perfection. As if the past wasn't also riddled with controversy and chaos. But Metz says there is another kind of memory. A memory that shocks us out of the familiar by radically acknowledging the reality of human suffering. 
Metz calls this type of memory dangerous memory. It is dangerous because it challenges us who are living in the presence, because it interrupts the status quo, because it pushes us to do something, not just reminisce. Our memory should be restlessly dangerous, not restfully nostalgic. Metz claims there is no way, there is no way one should be able to come to church experience anamnesis, which is the act of remembering the passion of Christ, remembering the death and the resurrection of Christ. No one should be able to come to church and experience that and not be pushed into political action as a result. No one should be able to come to the table of communion week after week, month after month, occasion after occasion, and not be pushed to disrupt status quos, and not be pushed to transform the conditions of our living together and call themselves Christian. So maybe the great schism in our modern faith is not about allowing women in leadership versus banning women from leadership. Maybe the great schism in our modern faith is not about ordaining our LGBTQ siblings or not ordaining our LGBTQ siblings, United Methodist Church. Maybe the great schism in our modern faith is that we all call Christianity the same thing, but we're having different memories. What are we remembering? Because there is no way you can break bread and remember the suffering of Christ and then inflict that same suffering on others because of their sexual orientation. There is no way that you can in good faith break bread and remember the suffering of Christ and then put rules in place that exclude certain genders from leadership. There is no way that if you are remembering what I'm remembering, which is the suffering of Christ and Christ's solidarity with the suffering, there is no way you can then go out and vote against red flag laws that could protect our children and stop the harm in our communities. There is no way. You can remember the suffering of Christ week in and week out and say everything is fine. Gun control laws are fine. Unaffordable housing prices are fine. The labor crisis is fine. The hurricane seasons that are getting worse, fine. So the problem must be memory. Because engaging in dangerous memory should push us to say everything is not okay. It should push us to fight with all of our might to transform the unfortunate and despicable situations of our living together. We should be banging on the doors of city halls and clogging up the phone lines of death-dealing senators if we are to remember the suffering. When we break bread and when we drink wine, what are we remembering? Who are we remembering? Are we remembering the glory days of Christendom or are we remembering the way Jesus flipped tables in the temple and said, not on my watch? 
Are we misremembering hate or are we remembering love? Are we remembering the rules that exclude people from worship or are we remembering that Jesus broke rules, that he broke rules so that the outcast could have life and have it more abundantly? Is your memory dangerous or is it comfortable? What are you remembering? Jesuit priest Daniel Berengen had a vision of the Eucharist that placed the Eucharist as central to his understanding of protest and resistance. Theologian Michael Plekin writes that Beringen followed many return to the sources theologians. These are the theologians who believed in restoring the ancient vision that liturgy was not just about personal salvation but about life. That the Eucharist was the bread of life for the world as Jesus proclaimed in the Gospel of John. Berengen argued that Christ's ministry was set up rhythms. He was to set up rhythms between a living Eucharist and a time process in which the Eucharist was to make the church and the church would make the Eucharist. That is to say that dangerous memory that pushes us into political action is what makes the church the church. And then the church in turn continues to call upon that memory to enact political action for the sake of life, transforming lives, saving lives, renewing lives. When we are remembering, it is for the sake of life. We are remembering, we are putting the pieces of the body of Christ back together so that his mission may come alive in us. At the Last Supper, after Jesus had blessed and broken and given the bread and the cup to his friends, he encouraged them to keep doing the acts of blessing and breaking and giving, blessing and breaking and giving in remembrance of him. When I had my holy hunger as a child, communion was just a time for me to receive to be given the holy snack that would hopefully satiate my hunger, if only for a minute. I, I thought I was there to get my monthly gift from the pastor. But Jesus reminds us that the gift is to be given away. So you are not just coming to the table and taking something when you come to the table of grace. You aren't just being fed. You aren't just trying to squelch your own hunger while others remain hungry. Kalawale Paul says disciples should not remain relaxed or armchaired because of their salvation in Christ. They should have hunger. Hunger to bring others to the light and knowledge of God's saving grandeur. We are committing at the table of grace. We are committing to giving the gift away. Or as Dr. Eddie Glout Jr. puts it, we are becoming better people by fundamentally transforming the conditions of our living together. So beloved, today we will have communion Today, 
we will have communion, and this communion is unlike any other communion. Today, we make a commitment to act. Today, we say, I will not leave here weary and brokenhearted and pulling my hairs out, wondering what I can do to transform the conditions of our living together. Today, I will live out the Great Commission and be a disciple and make disciples, not so we can grow the church or take over the world with some warped form of Christianity, but so we can transform the world. Today we will have communion and we will remember the suffering of Christ and those around us by dedicating ourselves to gun reform. Today. We will remember by dedicating ourselves to fortifying the education of our young people. Today, we will remember by helping LGBTQ youth get the medical care they need and deserve. Today, we will remember by supporting reproductive health care. The hour is here. The time is now. We are having communion. I invite you to come to this table of grace if you are able and willing. You can physically get up out of your seat in the sermon and nobody's going to yell at you because I said you can do it. I invite you to the table of grace because we have work to do. This is your bread of life. This is your cup of the new covenant. The table has been prepared for you. All are welcome to come. If you are at home, there are some things that you can do. You can text ACT to the number 64433. You can make a commitment to helping educate our young people by volunteering for Freedom School. You can help support transgender youth in Texas and North Carolina. There are things you can do. And you can't do everything right now all at once. So pick your one or your two and, and, and make a commitment to doing that thing this week or this month. to share with your neighbor, bring it back to your seat.
Feel free to share with your neighbor. If you took more than one, there's more than enough work to go around. Or swap with your neighbor, barter. God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.